Welcome to George McDonald and Us. This is Catherine. And this is Sean. And we are a married couple out of rural Minnesota. And this is our first episode of the George McDonald and Us podcast. So we'd like to extend a very warm welcome to any listeners who are checking this new thing out. We hope you find something for you in this podcast. For those of you who may not know who George McDonald is, he was from Scotland. He was born in 1824 and he died in 1905, so he lived around that time. And he was a Scottish author, poet, and Christian congregational minister. He's not very well known, but really inspired some of the well-known authors, British authors such as J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and even Lewis Carroll. And I just found out recently that he was friends with Mark Twain. So he had a lot of influence in in literary circles. But he himself, I feel like, isn't super well-known. I found out about him when I read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. He is a character in that story by C.S. Lewis. Sean, how did, how did you find out about him? I first read his essay on justice, and that was very intriguing for me and I thought uh, there was a lot of wise insight and maybe someday we will share a little bit more about how that affected our relationship and when I read that and shared it with Katie and so George McDonald has had an impact in our life and our marriage and well I'm sure in future episodes we will have more on that yeah so stay tuned (laughs) there's always more coming Basically, the structure of this podcast is we are going to choose a work by George MacDonald, and we're going to read that for you. And we want to read it for you because we think that it's really important that these works are known. We don't just want to talk about George MacDonald. We actually want to like get George MacDonald's actual works and stories out there. And in the culture, I, I think about how stories have shaped cultures. I mean, fairy tales grew up out of culture and shaped them. Every culture has its own myths, its own songs, and I think that they're just being told less and less and sadly just being forgotten, or we analyze them instead of actually telling the story. And I think that the story itself is the most important thing. And I just want to say, too, we're going to start out with his poetry and his short stories, his fairy tales, but we would like to move on to his sermons, too. And we might even have to do some of his his larger stories and works in pieces. So we will first read his work aloud on the podcast, and then Sean and I are going to basically have a discussion about it, as we would any other day, like just if we were to read something together of his and talk about it, and that's kind of how the inspiration or the idea of this podcast came about, is that we were doing this exact thing, and then I said, well, hey, why don't we just record it and make a podcast out of it in case other people find it insightful, so... 
So today, the first work that we're going to be reading is one of our favorite poems titled King Cole. And I will read it now. King Cole, he reigned in arrow land, but the scepter was seldom in his hand. Far oftener was there his golden cup. He ate too much, but he drank all up. To be called a king and to be a king, that is one thing and another thing. So his majesty's head began to shake, and his hands and his feet to swell and ache. The doctors were called, but they dared not say, Your majesty drinks too much to kay. So out of the king's heart died all mirth, and he thought there was nothing good on earth. Then up rose the fool, whose every word was three parts wise and one part absurd. Nuncle, he said, never mind the gout. I will make you laugh till you laugh it out. King Cole pushed away his full gold plate. The jester, he opened the palace gate, brought in a cold man with hunger grim, and on the day's edge seated him, then caught up the king's old golden plate and set it beside him. Oh, how he ate! And the king took note with a pleased surprise that he ate with his mouth and his cheeks and his eyes, with his arms and his legs and his body whole, and laughed aloud from his heart and soul. Then from his lordly chair got up and carried the man his own gold cup. The goblet was deep and wide and full. The poor man drank like a cow at a pool. Said the king to the jester, I call it well done to drink with two mouths instead of one. Said the king to himself, as he took his seat, It is quite as good to feed as to eat. It is better, I do begin to think, to give to the thirsty than to drink. And now I have thought of it, said the king. There might be more of this kind of thing. The fool heard. The king had not long to wait. The fool cried aloud at the palace gate. The ragged and wretched, the hungry and thin, loose in their clothes and tight in their skin, gathered in shoals till they filled the hall, and the king and the fool they fed them all. And as with good things their plates they piled, and the king grew merry as a little child. On the morrow early he went abroad, and sought poor folk in their own abode, sought them till evening foggy and dim, did not wait till they came to him, and every day after did what he could, gave them work and gave them food. Thus he made war on their wintry weather, and his health and the spring came back together. But lo, a change had passed on the king, like the change of the world in that same spring. His face had grown noble and good to see, and the crown sat well on his majesty. Now he ate enough, and he ate no more. He drank about half what he drank before. He reigned a real king in Ireland, reigned with his head and his heart and his hand. All this through the fool did come to pass, and every Christmas Eve that was, the palace gates stood open wide, and the poor came in from every side. And the king rose up and served them duly, and his people loved him very truly. You know, when I first 
read this poem, I I just sort of felt, you know, it's called King Cole. And there's that nursery rhyme, Old King Cole was a merry old soul, and a merry old soul was he. He called for his pipe, and he called for his bowl, and he called for his fiddler's three. Um, and and I, I think it goes on. I think there's more. But when I was reading this poem, this King Cole isn't so merry. Oh, and it's not King Cole, C-O-A-L, but it's King Cole, C-O-L-E. Yeah, So that's the same as in the fairy tale yeah, in the nursery, right? Just wanted yeah. to clarify that part. Yeah. yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's... The scepter was seldom in his hand. Far oftener was there his golden cup. He ate too much, but he drank all up. To be called a king and to be a king, that is one and another thing. So he's just not the King Cole that's merry and calling for his pipe and his bowl and his fiddler's three to me. I mean, this is a very different King Cole, as I said, and he's kind of a sorrowful fellow. I mean, his hands and feet began to swell. Um, His majesty's head began to shake. The doctors were called, so he's sick, and um, out of the king's heart died all mirth. So I just wonder why George MacDonald chose to have this take particularly on King Cole. I mean, I assume he's he's using that same old nursery rhyme, but I don't know. But that just struck me as kind of peculiar, why he took a merry king and made him sad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I not thought about that. That's interesting. But he's definitely a man that's caught in, you know, the worldly possessions and passions and unable to fulfill his duty as a king and i find it very interesting that it's the the fool or the gesture that is more of the merry one while they are typically kind of merry i guess um but he's he's the one that really opens the king's eyes Mm -hmm. and I, i find that uh pretty pretty interesting and enlightening uh the one of the the lines at the end that all this through the fool did come to pass it's kind of a powerful line um that maybe you don't really hear something like that often yeah it's kind of interesting because when i think george mcdonald is really Maybe approaching what it actually means to be a king. I think we think of kings as having a lot of wealth and power and riches. Um, But here, that's not what a king is in this poem for George MacDonald. And I'm paying attention to how his head is described and his feet and his hands. And when I think of like the head... Um, I think like symbolically or traditionally the head um, is like the ruling faculty of of the body. We speak of Christ as head of the church. It's sort of 
the yeah, like the ruling, the organizing part, and then the hands and the feet work to embody what the head is is trying to put out or trying to you know organize and 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 bring about um and it feels like well his head is shaking so there's no real organizing faculty happening in this head Um, and by organizing i almost mean like like tending to a garden like not not a not a tyrannical organizing or a a rigid boring organizing but a cultivating organizing and then his hands and his feet are swelling so they're not they're not embodying anything either and so those elements of kingship are are lacking and it's not yeah it's, his kingship isn't defined by his food and his wealth i i i just also want to think about what what's the problem here and He's eating and he's drinking. Um, and I I am a, an amateur Jungian. I mean, I, I don't even want to call myself a Jungian, I guess. I, I like Carl Jung a lot. And in, in Jungian understanding, um, like Marion Woodman, who was a Jungian analyst whom I really admire, she talks about how food can symbolize the mother and then spirit or drink can symbolize the father. And I don't know what kind of drink he's referring to here. I, I guess. Yeah, 2, 2K. I'm not sure what that is. I guess T-O-K-A-Y. Yeah, maybe one of our listeners will know. Um, anyway, if, if we think about it as matter and spirit, these are things that the king is struggling with, matter and spirit. And and Jung connects those to to the mother and the father. So there's something within the king that's that's lacking that he's compensating for by by consuming. And yes, I mean the remedy is the fool. Yeah, and there's something within the king that is there that you know is riled up from seeing. A man eats that the fool brings to him so there's some goodness inside of him that just needs to be brought out right so the fool brings forth a poor man yeah and it's the way that the poor man eats that's really this inciting incident which reminds me of my favorite podcaster jason jones talks about the inciting incident quite often and all all of the guests that he brings on is typically his question to them is was there an inciting incident in their life that changed their lives that changed the course and he himself has uh, describes his quite often um, of having his high school girlfriend being forced into an abortion from from her father and that's what ultimately changed the course of his entire life and got him into uh, his his work that he's doing today. So I, I really like that this poem shows that there can be some very, very powerful, inciting incident that ends up changing the course of, in this case, the king's actions and even pushes him beyond cleaning up his act and not eating and drinking too much, but seeking out the poor in other lands even 
And I, I think that's very powerful for us today that I know myself, I think about this quite often that is there an exciting incident in my life or what, what would that be? Should, should it take an inciting incident for me to be better or do something that's more worthwhile with my life or, you know, something, something different. I think of parents that have had children with a disease or something and they, they end up becoming champions and of finding cures for those diseases and setting up foundations. And, um, I admire those people that do that type of work without having an inciting incident in their life. Um, so I think it's just worth pondering that um, if there is if if there's been an inciting incident in your life or it, what would that be in your life too I think is worth thinking about a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I think Jung talks about how there's gold behind the shadow and yeah, I mean we can we can even I think we can even do that in in, in our own inner work thinking about even just like ourselves um on a day-to-day basis i mean if something happens that really frustrates you or makes you sad or really gets your attention to say where did that come from <laughs> you know like when was the first time i i felt that way about something and just try to be really curious about about what gets our attention. Yeah, what is the what are the inciting incidences even like on a microcosm level? Here's a question because I I think we made a jump from like so the so the fool, I mean, he's supposed to be funny, right? And he even says um I will make you laugh till you laugh it out. That line struck me as like, what is it? But is he trying to be funny? Because he doesn't do any jokes or anything funny. Well, that's what I'm saying is the fool typically is somebody who who tells the truth through humor. I mean, I think I think the purpose of the fool was to keep the king's ego and pride in check. And so the fool had to be honest, but he had to do it in a way that wouldn't offend the king or the queen. So he was always like walking this tightrope of like I don't want to overstep my bounds but I it is like the like my job to tell the uncomfortable truth and I think a great example of a fool who does that is in King Lear and Shakespeare I would really recommend reading that as sort of like um for me it it's sort of the the epitome of a fool character um but okay I mean so so the fool is saying like he's going to make him make him laugh till he laughs it out and then he proceeds to bring in a poor man to eat his his stuff. And so I'm just wondering is there an element of humor in the way that the poor man eats like eating with two mouths instead of one um I mean, there's nothing funny about a. a I mean, he's described as a cold man with hunger grim. 
There's nothing funny about that. No, I, I almost think of the fool as, in this scenario, almost being more of, um, like, kind of a cunning, mm. thoughtful person, because there's a line that says, the doctors were called, but they dared not say it. So the doctors did not have the mm. courage to tell the king what his true, you know, issue was. And the fool didn't say it either, but he did say it in a certain way, maybe in a different way. He was cunning enough to maybe get that message across, but not using humor. I I guess I don't see that in my mind, but being maybe a little bit more strategic or... Yeah. Yeah, well, right. Yes, I mean, you're right. That is the... The balancing act of the fool is to, yes, be cunning. You're right. Yeah, and there is a, an element of courageousness in that, too, mm-hmm. that no one else is, that has around the king, it seems, in the story. Yeah. Yeah. I guess now that I think about it a little more, um, Marie-Louise von Franz, she was a Jungian analyst as well, and she does a lot of fairy tale analysis And I remember her talking about how the fool in the fairy tale traditionally chooses death. So if there are, um, oh, I don't know, a couple of journeys or roads to take, um, you know, the the knight will take the road that doesn't lead to death, but it ends up being his demise anyway. And then, I don't know, the, the merchant will take the other road that doesn't lead to death and it'll end up being his demise. But it's the... The fool who who looks at the road that clearly leads to death and says, that's the one I'm going to take. And then he ends up being successful and triumphant. And, I mean, when I think about this, the poor man that he brings in, a, a cold man with hunger grim, I mean, there is an element of, of death here. I feel like, like it's almost like the fool is bringing in death you know, bringing the king into that awareness almost and, like, choosing that route. I wonder if that would have been viewed, like, as offensive to bring someone in like that to a king in this context. If that in itself would be a very risky thing for a fool to do or a jester to do, I'm I'm curious. It could be. Mm -hmm. As you were talking about choosing death, maybe, I, I... it doesn't really exactly say what the what the what happens to the fool, I guess, at the end here. Yeah. Um, but it, there is a line um, about halfway through where the king had said there might be more of this kind of thing, and the fool heard, and the fool cried aloud at the palace gate. So hmm. the the fool did go on to help the king in his mission going forward but i think that's the last that we hear of the fool so i'm kind of it's interesting to think about it is and then or no it does say one other line there and the the king and the fool they fed them all so he he did do this with the king he did and it's almost like the king so so you know he he has the king has a change of heart in the story in the poem and um he becomes like a little child and he feeds them, and then he goes, the king 
it says, and sought poor folk in their own abode, sought them till evening foggy and dim, did not wait till they came to him. So he's doing kind of what the fool is doing at this point. Like he's choosing what the fool chose. Like he's seeking out what the fool sought, yeah, which that's is interesting. Which is the poor. And um yeah, I mean I do sense there's just a lot of really grim imagery in this poem used to describe the poor, loose in their clothes and tight in their skin. And I was thinking, like, what does the poor really symbolize in a story? If we don't look at this super literally for a second, um, what what is it to be poor symbolically um, and, and in, our, in our own inner world? I, I, I do think of vulnerability and death. And as a king, I don't think you are thinking about your own vulnerability all that much. Uh, but he had it. We know that he had it because he was trying to to cover it up with drink and food. You know, mother and father are protect protect us from being vulnerable when we're little. And he evidently didn't have a very strong, I'd say, inner mother and father. And so he turned to the food and the drink to compensate for that. Perhaps because he was afraid of his own vulnerability, his own death. And the fool's answer to that is to nourish, to go out to find, you know, the vulnerable and to nourish it and to care for it and to feed it. And I think that that can be applied to all of us as well. Yeah, I find it really cool in this story too that it, with that, with the king, it, it, he, it was really simple that just by doing this and helping the poor, you know, he basically healed because it says at the end he reigned with his head and his yeah. heart and his hand. So mm -hmm. it, it totally came within him and righted his, you know, inner his 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 mind and everything. Um, so I I like that part of the story a lot because it's an example of how service to others can be so rewarding in many many ways. I think. Not in ways that maybe you would you would think. I mean, what what would that have to do with reigning with your head as a king, really? But something translates from from service to being better at that, and maybe that's part of leadership is serving others. I think without that, it's difficult to be a good leader. But why why is that? I, I'm not hundred percent sure what translates there, but something definitely does. Yeah. I mean, why is it that the fool is the one who chooses the path of the death and then is rewarded for it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think I, I love how George MacDonald repeats the head and the heart motive at the end that now 
he is ruling. He reigned with his head and his heart and his hand. So in the beginning, those things were off kilter, right? Um, his head was shaking. The hands and the feet were swollen. So there's no, there's no, yeah, there's no organizing principle in the head. There's no reigning power in the head. And then nothing is being embodied. But now everything, like there, there's that, that ruling, that kingship. And his heart and his hand, there, there's that embodiment of it. Um, and I was, we were just listening to someone else that we really like, um, Dr. Malcolm. I'm, I can't, I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce yeah. his last Geit, name. Geit, okay, Dr. Malcolm Geit. We were um, listening to his talk on C.S. Lewis at Ulster University's first annual C.S. Lewis Symposium. It's on YouTube. And he was talking exactly about embodiment. And I just have to share this quote. He says, The whole purpose of the imagination is to take something which we would otherwise have not comprehended or got hold of and give it a body, give it a bodily form. And I think these days we're too dualistic in how we look at stories, how we would look at this poem. You know, I think we might think, oh, this is just a nice poem or a dark take on on King Cole, you know, like he's actually a gluttonous drunk and um but I think what we're what we're finding now is that there is a movement both in Christianity and as as Carl Jung is kind of getting more popular now and and out there that we're saying no, like there is a unity here. There is a body soul unity that permeates the cosmos, that permeates ourselves, and it's reflected in our stories. And that there isn't this, like, this dualistic split between these two. And, um, I, you know, I just think that this poem, ironically, we chose it as our first one, but I think this poem is really what this podcast is going to be all about. I think we're going to find a lot of examples in the works of George MacDonald where he uses imagination and poetry and art, the art of words, to embody a truth, to make it present before us. Um, Dr. Ian um, Malcolm, Dr. Malcolm, excuse me, quotes, Shakespeare, he thought the same thing. He re Shakespeare wrote in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Act 5, The poet's eye in fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Um, and then Dr. Malcolm, and I think C.S. Lewis does the same thing in, in Surprised by Joy, says this is what the Gospel of John is all about. When he says, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Um, so I think like as we read these poems, these stories, these works by George MacDonald, we're going to really dive into how how they are embodying a truth and how we see this truth being embodied from our perspective um, and how that reflects 
the Logos, Christ, um, and and St. Maximus the Confessor's statement that the cosmos itself is a reflection of of Christ. Yeah, I think that's very true. I also think one reason why I like George McDonald so much is he's a lot of what he says is challenging or contrary to what you've maybe thought of in the past. And I think in this poem, he's challenging you to be the gesture as well as the changed king, I believe, and not the doctors that weren't, you know, speak the truth and not the king before, uh, you know, he changed. And I don't know of any other stories that challenge you to be the gesture, I guess, or to be the fool. And I think that's classic. George MacDonald is kind of challenging you to be something that you wouldn't have thought to be. And it's even in his theological writings. It just, there's an element of that often with him that it's just, he says things in ways that you've not heard before, but has, I think, clarity to it that, that I've never heard or read someone before. And, I'm excited to read some more of these these works and find some more things like this to see what else he, he has to say. Yes. I, oh, yeah. I really love what you said there. I You're right. I mean, we are called to be the fool and the king in this story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how that's just not... That's just not... In our culture, to be the fool. And maybe it never has. I mean, I think about, um, so a little bit about myself, I guess. Like, we're we're Western Christians, we're Roman Catholics, um, raised on it. And the past few years, I have really come to grow in and appreciate the, the, the Greek or the Eastern Antiochian Orthodox way um and i'm i'm pursuing a studies in it through the antiochian house of studies and i i just love it and i love studying the the early church fathers and i love love um really really looking at what the east emphasizes um and 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 it's beautiful and it's it's just funny how it feeds off of each other though because as i look closer at the east i'm also like looking at the West a little differently, too. And I do think one of our great gifts as a Western tradition is the fool, is John the Baptist. Not that he's a product of of the Western tradition, but I think what we in the West have particularly focused on with with St. John the Baptist, and the East does this, too, in its iconography, but... um, I think his character, his persona, St. John the Baptist, I think has a bit of the fool element in it. I mean, he's the wild man eating locusts and honey. He is challenging the king, right? Um, That's what gets him in trouble. I guess he's not coy or funny enough, but he is the fool and he chooses death. Um, and I think that the West in particular has this gift of really taking John the Baptist and putting him, if not him directly, like I say, who he is um, 
and symbolically. I mean, I think about how the fool turns up in this poem. Shakespeare wrote a lot about the fool. He's in fairy tales all the time. And Tolkien, um, man, I just feel like Tom Bombadil <laughs> has a lot of the fool element. And there he is right at the beginning of the Hobbits' journey. Um, anyway... I mean, the West has always been known as kind of being this untamed, wild thing. Um, you know, you read Anna Anna Kamenna's um, The Alexiad, and the way that the, the Eastern Byzantines saw the Westerners, it was just like, yeah, you guys are ridiculous and unruly. And I think that there is an element of the fool just in our in our heartbeat, in our veins. And I think he's going to turn up again here. And I think he is so important for us to be. Um, but I don't know how to be him. It's a journey. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm excited to read some other stories. I mean, that Maybe we'll, we'll understand that more. Yeah, right. We'll learn more about the fool and how he's embodied. All right. Well, um, I guess this wraps it up for this first episode. I hope you enjoyed the poem. I hope you check it and other references we made in this podcast in the show notes. And... I hope you got something out of our discussion about it together. Um, if you liked this, we do have a Patreon page where you can support us. We have different levels of support that you can sign up for. There, the, the lowest one is $3 a month. So if you like our content, hop on over to Patreon. Um, we are titled George McDonald and Us. It's the same title as our podcast. So please consider supporting us on Patreon. But above all, please do share this podcast with your friends and family if you enjoyed it. And please do check back as we hope to have regular episodes coming out um, at least on a monthly basis, if not more. So Yeah, and print it out and read this poem to your kids. It's a perfect Amen. length for bedtime. Yeah. I think the more that we can get our kids or grandkids exposed to these works would be fantastic and our kids have loved it so far the few times i've read it to them so i think i'm always looking for stories or poems this length that don't take too much time but have good messages so and what's great about you know stories that use these very ancient modes of imagery with kings and gestures and the poor and oh man there's just so much imagery in here is that you don't need to explain it to them because these are images that are in their hearts already yeah it's a great so point. don't feel like you have to explain anything they'll probably explain it to you and they'll probably yeah. be they'll probably be spot on that's that you know i you know i've always loved tolkien and c.s lewis i'm such a nerd when it comes to those guys and i'm actually looking at a picture of me and a friend kneeling at st louis's grave right now i have that posted up here in our little our little office area here and they've just meant so much to me in my life and I've never really thought about George McDonald in 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 the you know he's always just kind of been like in the shadowy background I guess I mean I knew he was important to these guys and influenced them but sometimes when I read him I was like I just don't 
really, this is what influenced Tolkien and Lewis? Like, I just, I didn't see it. So anyway, I'm really excited to, like, grow in my love and appreciation for George MacDonald because I think... I think, he, like, if you've ever seen a picture of George MacDonald, he looks like John the Baptist. I mean, he has this huge beard. I mean, he just, he just, he looks like the fool, maybe. You know, or he's just like that, that counter, you know, like, I don't want to say countercultural as in, like, to, to put him in a box as being, like, this, I don't know, hipster man or something. But maybe he's the original hipster. I don't know. Or he's definitely, he's definitely an authentic person. And I think in his authenticity, he's the fool, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, take care. Check out our Patreon page. And please come again. We enjoy having you. Thank you. Take care. Bye.